I know that um, medical technology has come a long way in the 24th century, but it still always tickles my fancy in this episode where the Admiral suffers an aneurysm. And then Bashir is like, didn't you suffer an aneurysm? He's like, yeah, I'm just uh, doing some light paperwork to recover from, from my aneurysm later in the episode. It's, it's a, mm-hmm. a marvel of medical technology moving into Star Trek at this point. How are you guys? I mean, it's technically a Voyager set, right? So they have the nanoprobes that can just cure death handy, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Clay, this is a Voyager set, if you didn't realize. It's the only time that we're going to see the Voyager ship on DS9, and they have the sets up to uh, to take advantage of that and everything. But it's probably not the most exciting parts of the episode. But anyway, we're joined well, by Darren and Clay. Clay, how are you? I'm good. All I know about medical technology in the 24th century is that there is only one way to obtain a quickening, and this is not it. <laughs> You don't do it through a PowerPoint presentation in front of a, a group of Romulans, I guess. I mean, it, you can, as long as it ends with you cutting somebody's head off. Yeah, Darren, how are you? I'm grand, Raz. Um, I do feel a little bit of dread when you added the dangerous qualification of, Wes, this is the only time you're going to see the Voyager set, dramatic pause, on Deep Space Nine. <laughs> <laughs> we're still working on whether or not we're going to be doing Voyager. So there's there's a a deep breath before we realize all of that stuff. But let's um let's take a break. I'm going to play the intro credits and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about this episode Enter Arma Inum Sealant Legacy. Accessing library computer data. Out there, there are no saints. Just people. All right, everybody. So this episode is, as I said before, Enter Arma Einem Sealand's Legacy. It is the 16th episode of the seventh season, aired on March 3rd, 1999, written by Ronald D. Moore, directed by David Livingston. In this episode, attending a medical conference on Romulus, Dr. Bashir becomes embroiled in an elaborate scheme devised by Section 31 as a way to ensure the Romulans remain on the side of the Federation Alliance. Really, um... You know, Clay, we didn't really touch on this in our Bada Bing, Bada Bang podcast, but there's a little bit of behind-the-scenes production stuff where Bada Bing was actually produced after this episode, but it aired first. So Mm. Bada Bing is the last regular episode production-wise of DS9 before they move into their nine episode or whatever final chapter thing. Um, And at the time, when we watched Bada Bing, I was like, you know what? This is kind of a nice touching way for the series to wrap up, even if it's not the final one because of air date shenanigans. It is a nice, like, the cast lets their hair down, they have a good time, they talk about Vic Fontaine, they go on the holodeck and all that stuff, and we celebrate mm-hmm. DS9 as a series. However, after watching this one, Enter Arma, Einem, Sealand, Legus, I think that um, I think that this is actually a better way to end the regular series of DS9 episodes, uh, because I think that this episode, and I'll throw it to both of you, is DS9 operating at its best, and it's a representation of what DS9 does best, what it does better than the other Star Treks, and I don't think that Bada Bing Bada Bang is really what DS9 does very well. <laughs> so I, I, that's my that's my general take on the entire episode. But Clay, what's your thoughts first, and then we'll move to Darren. Yeah, it's um, it is a good primer for uh, whatever is going to happen next by fa- by ending your uh, episodic episodes with oh by the way don't forget that uh starfleet is is pretty gray in this series before we get into the uh the the final stretch here um yeah i thought it was really good i was uh <laughs> i was i was a little disappointed that um this admiral who made it through the entire series as as the only admiral not to have an ulterior motive finally had an ulterior motive 
<laughs> um, and as soon as the aneurysm thing happened, I was like, oh, yeah, oh, okay, the Admiral's obviously in on this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually, for a while, I, I wasn't sure if maybe he wasn't, and it was uh, Adrian Barbeau, whose character, I forget, Cleric or something. Kretek, isn't it? Is that the woman? Uh, the, the woman Romulo is Kretek, yeah. Yes, yeah. that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, I thought maybe she was in on it, and it was, you know, the whole sort of like a fake courtroom thing that was going to be revealed or whatever. But uh, uh, yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was good. I thought it was a, a pretty good twisty mystery. Um, I learned that apparently the dress uniforms show off that uh, Bashir's arms are freakishly long. <laughs> <laughs> they're the nemesis dress uniforms right they're, they're the white he cocktail like, server outfit yeah do you remember at the end of robocop where they shoot the guy out the window yes. and then they use that like claymation thing where he's got really long arms and yep. it looks really inhuman he looks like that <laughs> he's everyone's commenting on his thinness too but he's he's a different era it's like the uh how everyone back in like the 1600s was fat and that was the new fit but Bashir <laughs> is just 90s thin i think is the way to go at mm-hmm. it Darren, you requested this episode uh, as our final guest of our regular DS9 entries because it's just going to be me and Clay going the rest of the way. So why did you choose Enter Arma Einem Sealand Legus? Uh, it's basically one of my favorite episodes of Star Trek ever made. So no pressure whatsoever in talking about it. Um, and a large part of that is, I think, what you, hinted, what you hinted at there, which is it is an episode that really sums up what Deep Space Nine does really, really well. And it's really great that it does that while patently raiding its siblings' closets. It's very much you have Bashir wearing the uniform from uh, Insurrection at the time. You have the trip to Romulus, which is obviously like a Star Trek Next Generation thing. You have the Voyager sets happening as well. But in the middle of it, you have a story that, despite all of that, is a story that you could only ever have told on Deep Space Nine. Um, And one of the reasons why it works so well is because as well as being that, and this is interesting, because again, you, you sort of alluded to it there when you talked about like the, you're the deep breath before taking the plunge. And I also really, really like Bada Bing Bada Bang. I don't think it's one of the best episodes of the show ever made, but it's a really nice, warm, kind of cuddly, sort of like, you know, sort of throw rug almost, kind of like that. You can wrap around yourself as you get ready to go into the final run of episodes. But Inter-Arma NM Silent Legas is remarkable because it is effectively the last standalone episode of the show And its entire central premise is that everything that you've been watching on Deep Space Nine up to this point isn't going to suddenly stop when the show ends. It's going to keep unfurling. It's going to keep moving. Parts that have been sort of set in motion are going to keep bouncing around after the show has ended, uh, which is a remarkable kind of act of confidence. Now, obviously, when you did Next Generation, you had stuff like the Maquis arc kind of setting up Voyager and kind of like setting up stuff that would pay off in Deep Space Nine. But for this production team, this is the end of Star Trek. And it's kind of amazing going into this, that this entire episode is based around the premise of what happens after the Dominion War ends. What happens after this kind of like, you know, apocalyptic kind of epoch defining conflict on which we base so much of the show wraps up, you know, what happens after that point? And, you know, there's a temptation to suggest, I imagine like Voyager or Next Generation would probably have said, well, after that, everybody lived happily ever after. I really like that before Deep Space Nine takes that final plunge, its thesis statement is, no, things will continue to be horribly messed up. Politics will continue to operate. People will continue to scheme and lie. Empires will continue to rise and fall and plot against one another. And the world will keep on turning. And I think that's a very Deep Space Nine attitude to take. And it's something I can't imagine any other Star Trek episode, Star Trek show 
uh, doing as it enters its end game. And I really, really like that aspect of it. I also think, and we'll probably talk about this later on, that this is probably, and this is going to be mildly controversial, the only time that I think Section 31 has like 100% worked in the context of Star Trek. I, I trust that Starfleet Intelligence will be sending someone along to make good use of this opportunity. What do you mean? Well, isn't it obvious? This is a golden opportunity to gather intelligence on Romulan intentions and military capabilities. There are allies, Garak. And with any luck, this could be the beginning of an entirely new friendship between our peoples. The eternal optimist. Guilty as charged. Oh, sad. I must tell you, I'm disappointed at hearing you mouth the usual platitudes of peace and friendship regarding an implacable foe like the Romulans. But... I live in hope that one day you'll come to see this universe for what it truly is rather than what you'd wish it to be. And I shall endeavor to become more cynical with each passing day. Look gift horses squarely in the mouth and find clouds in every silver lining. If only you meant it. Before, sorry, before we continue, I'd like to say that I know what you both are doing. And I'm not going to fall for it, and I'm not going to try and pronounce the title of this episode. <laughs> you're just tossing it around like it's no big thing, and it's very impressive. Clay, do you I'm realize I've been practicing in, in the mirror for the past 15 minutes about how to say I wrote it out phonetically on the paper that's hanging from my computer screen now, so I'm reading it every single time that I, I to say don't it. I'm just counting on you guys not that. calling my bluff. <laughs> I didn't take Latin in high school. I took uh, Spanish uh, in Spanish turned out to be the language that didn't die unfortunately so you know i'm I'm ahead of the game on that one spanish won the war (laughs) (laughs) i think um i like this episode because it is you know for all the the sort of hubbub and stuff that ds9 gets is like the morally gray uh star trek series which i kind of disagree with i think that this one is the i think that this episode is the one that really sort of brings the point about the ds9 tries to make which is that your philosophy has weaknesses to it. Like there is a, the Roddenberry ethos of like the TNG universe has a downside to it. And I think the most modern day equivalent that uh, Sloan says at the end is kind of the idea of pacifism, right? If you're a pacifist in real life, everyone's just like, everyone should be a pacifist. Pacifist is a good thing because no one will be fighting if everyone's a pacifist. The problem with being a pacifist is that you need everyone else around you to also be pacifist or else you (laughs) will quickly suffer the end of your pacifist lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this does a really good job of, like, does anyone here, is anyone take Bashir's side in this episode? I, I find Bashir to be incredibly naive in this episode. And I think that Section 31 really shines through it because Section 31 is this kind of like hard flashlight of truth on the Star Trek universe. And I find I find Bashir heroic, and I find that his like idealism is something that we should strive to, but he also seems naive as to what the downside of his thinking could be, and he doesn't seem to accept it by the end either, which is really kind of fascinating. Well, they they essentially say that to him multiple times. Yeah. <laughs> Where they have Garrick say it to him in, in a little bit more um, uh, friendly language and then they have sloan say it to him and to him later in a much more direct kind of uh, uh approach and i thought both of those scenes uh the garrick scene and the, that sloan scene i thought were both really really good i think the sloan scene's a little bit better um because you're so deep into the story at that point but yeah it's the 
he is even by the end of it, even being after being jerked around uh because of his naivete he it's he's heroic but he doesn't really do anything to stand up to it like they have that moment at the end where he doesn't put the badge back on which is you know that's represent uh representative of of uh of not being completely cool with it but then at the end after sloan uh sneaks in on him sleeping again which is also how long was he there is he just like watching him sleep (laughs) but uh after he leaves and he makes the call to odo and then he backs off he he backs off in a very sort of like childlike way where he just almost essentially but pulls the covers up over his face yeah uh and i thought it was a really really good ending so you think he's more turned i i mean i guess now that i'm thinking i don't know i don't think think he's i don't think he's turned i just think his he has he doesn't have the capacity to 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 do anything about it i don't think it's a matter of him uh coming around to that side and being like oh i'm gonna look the other way i think it's more of a i can't i there's nothing i can do i don't have any uh i i am the pawn that they're telling me that i am yeah i'll go almost go worse than worse than sort of was here and i'll say that i'll agree with clay the issue is that like bashir isn't just naive and powerless and impotent and all this he's a he's actually used his naivety yeah. is used. His kind of his trust in Kretek is used to basically at least get her sent to prison, probably get her executed, uh, which is an incredibly cynical plot beat. Um, which feels again, as sort of Wes said at the start of the episode, this feels like the culmination of Deep Space Nine. Because one of the things about Bashir, Bashir is the Roddenberry character on Deep Space Nine, uh, and you mm. almost from like from the outset you can tell that when you want to punch him so hard in the first <laughs> season because he's like, hey, look at how wonderful it is. We're all on the frontier. Gee, I'm really glad that there are poor suffering people here that I can help. Where's the pu- awesome. where's the pussy at? Where's the pussy at? <laughs> that's a very Roddenberry <laughs> yeah. approach too. Yeah, and, that's and actually like that's the- actually where's the pussy at is actually written under under his like bust of Roddenberry <laughs> that they keep in the writers' room. <laughs> The blindfold um, is kind of a bit kinkier than uh, than Rick Berman suggested right. that it was. That's right. Read um, between the lines. But but also even like the thing with Bashir is that, yeah, generally speaking, he is kind of the archetypal Roddenberry character. In fact, it's telling that like, you know, they originally wanted Terry Farrell to pop over to Next Generation on Birthright, but it ended up being uh, Siddiq Al-Fadil or Alexander Siddiq for uh, purposes of scheduling. And he kind of fit, on, fit in very, very well. It's hard to imagine Kira poking around, uh, you know, sort of Data's head or whatever, or even like DS9 era O'Brien poking around Data's head because he'd probably get sucked into Data's head and have to live a hundred years in there or something and end up horribly traumatized by it. But the thing with Bashir is that despite the fact the show kind of needles him a little bit throughout, for most of the run, when you look at the, the big Bashir episodes, Generally speaking, Deep Space Nine gives Bashir some level of moral authority. And you see it in the Bashir-centric episodes like Arman Bashir, where Garrick spends the entire episode saying, hey, you can't save everyone. Bashir says, I can, and then manages to do it. Or The Quickening, where he's like, hey, I can save everyone. And Dax is like, maybe you can't. And he's like, oh, maybe I can't, but I did. Um, and then even like Hippocratic Oath, where O'Brien's like, you can't save everyone. And Bashir's like, yeah, but I saved one person. That kind of counts, right? Um, what's different, and even like in, say, in The Pale Moonlight in the sixth season, when they want somebody to come and basically layer the kind of guilt on Cisco, it's not Odo. Odo's perfectly happy to look the other way in the assault on Quark. Um, there's Dax, who's perfectly happy to talk him into doing whatever is necessary to get the Romulans into the war. It's Bashir who shows up and is like, yeah, you, you want me to give you this kind of stuff that can be used to make biological weapons, 
I'm going to need that order in writing and I'm going to strongly object to it as well. Bashir kind of has that moral weight throughout Deep Space Nine and it is, it feels like a culmination of kind of like Deep Space Nine cynicism that it like, it took us seven seasons and like 17 episodes, but we finally, finally managed to like get one over on Bashir. He, we finally <laughs> got to have an episode where Bashir's smug, no, that, that's not really fair, but it, you know, his moral superiority finally didn't manage to see the day through. Hmm. And I mean, I, I, I agree with Wes that Deep Space Nine is nowhere near as cynical or dark or kind of twisted as, as many fans would claim. I think Deep Space Nine is quite humanist and compassionate. I think it's, it's quite close to what Wes said there about like, you know, Deep Space Nine just understands that, you know, pacifism is great and important, but unless everybody's a pacifist, it won't work. But I do think that it is an important thing for Deep Space Nine that like finally you have a point where Bashir's optimism and humanism and compassion kind of hit a brick wall that there's and they're not rendered any less valid for that like they're not rendered his virtues aren't diminished by the fact that you know he's manipulated by sloan um but they it's just the reality of the universe in which he operates you know people want to imagine that they live in a world where everything is good and if you live a good life that you will live a life that you know makes the world a better place but the reality is that you are moving through a world that is complicated that is nuanced and where there are actors who are not necessarily operating with your best interest at heart. And I think that's a very, it's a very fine line for Deep Space Nine to walk, but I think it does it remarkably well. I think in Inter Arma Enem Silent Legas kind of works as a payoff for all of that, I would argue. And they, they even get to him by having him do the right thing. Like they know he's in, in the, in the plot that is, is constructed around him. Uh, they know that he is going to do the right thing, and he's a man of tell, principle, as Sloane says. Yeah, he's going to tell. He literally says, "Thank you for doing the right thing." I think, or thank yeah. you for being a decent person at one point. Yeah, is it Kretek? I'm sorry, is it Kre- it's Kretek's Kretek, the right? woman? Yeah, yeah. He tells Kretek what's going on, and then after that, after he's uh, uh, interrogated, they bring him in front of the the Romulan Council, and he tells them what's going on. But all of that just leads into their plot to get Kretek off the council. Blah blah blah. So like the the linchpin of their plan is essentially counting on Bashir to know that something is wrong and try to write it. And in doing so, he ultimately helps them succeed in doing the underhanded thing they're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, does that, does that, does that lead to the episode saying that this night, the, like the Bashir viewpoint is always going to be taken advantage of by people. Like I'm, I'm, I find it a fascinating episode because I 100% agree with, if not agree, I understand why Section 31 exists. And you you realize like there there are certain like sort of moral breaks that you have to get through because if you're dealing with situations that are worse than what you strive for things to be, it, it might require you to break the rules occasionally to get to your point across. It's an ends justify the means kind of argument or the needs of the many in a very dark way. But it also kind of suggests that um, it does a good job of painting. I, I think I like it because they don't push Section 31 into this evil authoritarian state where they're clearly doing this to take advantage of people. Like they, they still seem to have their own principles behind them. But you could see how Section 31 could be a bad idea and just like slipping loose and, you know, running riot on things. So it, it's interesting that they don't really combine that and they play it more as like a Bashir's naive approach to life gets him led through things but i was just wondering if you if you guys thought that the um 
what it's what what the what does the show think about section 31 i guess would be my, the basis of my question or like the the fundamental question i'm trying to say i think it kind of approaches them in a morally i don't want to say neutral kind of way but in a way that it's very clear that section 31 are not good people um and it's very clear that what they're doing you know is is not morally you know clean or above board at the same time there's an argument that they exist like that's that's the argument that um i'd push back and i'd say that they are kind of good people like here so here's my here's my thing about section 31 Uh, spock in wrath of khan has his needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few right what ds9 does with that equation is where we talked about this in pale moonlight where spock's sacrifice is to kill himself which is a very easy decision ds9 takes the same conundrum how do you how do you help many people except it doesn't do it by self-sacrifice it says you have to kill this other person you have to kill one person to save the universe. It's a much harder ethical decision, even though it seems like it's not unlike the hedonistic scale. You're still just losing one life or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I just like that. And I would I would argue that Section 31 is actually, DS9 portrays them as fairly ethical people. Like they're fairly in control and realizing what they're doing. And they are striving for a greater good. Like they're not mustache twirling, which I think is the easy way well, to go not, with them. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're not. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say they're not, but they definitely are presented that way. Like they are. They're their uniform in black of leather. choice. <laughs> yeah, their uniform of choice is like a black. Well, that's the Roddenberry smock, influence, guys. That's the Roddenberry thing. Well, again. so what I find interesting about this episode and and sort of looking at the way that they're treated is that they they use. The uh, um, Bashir's naivete, and also, I think, I think this is what they're trying to do. They also use the hopes of the pe- of the people watching the show to feed into the fake story about Section Thirty One, because the way Section Thirty One is is uh, is portrayed in this and previously is this black ops. Uh, you know, leather-clad division of Starfleet that Starfleet doesn't even claim to know exists and won't acknowledge, um, but at the same time, they won't go after. And they are sort of this black mark on the the whole Star Trek concept. So during that, and, you know, which which might be off-putting for people who are who are much more attuned to the more Roddenberry kind of style of things. And so when they have the scene in, in front of the council, when they drag Sloan out... And they have him. They have uh, the other guy, the other Romulan guy's name. I forget the one who's dying. Koval. Sure. Um, they have him say there is no such thing as Section Thirty One. This guy just made it up and went off the deep end because he wanted revenge for the death of his mentor. And he's been, you know, organizing people of like-minded people to work outside the parameters of Starfleet and do these nasty things. It's like I. I feel like both Bashir and the the traditional Star Trek viewer is almost breathing a sigh of relief when yeah. it's like, oh, thank God, they're not actually part of Starfleet. They're not a, a legitimate wing to this thing that I held in such high regard. And then, then afterwards, when you get the turn at the end, it's that much more makes your makes your stomach turn that much more because it's like, no, not only are they part of uh, of Starfleet proper. They used Bashir in order to get this done, and they essentially probably got this woman killed. Yep. More than that, though, like I mean, this is this is why I think Inter Armenum as uh, Silent Legas is is like the best uh, Section Thirty One story that Star Trek's ever told. 
My issue with Section 31 as a concept, right, ignoring some of the issues with its later use and the excesses of it and the weirdness of it and the, uh, you know, let's just have, like, fascist Starfleet going on there in the background that you get with some later iterations. What are you, um, what are you the, talking about? I don't know what I could possibly be referring to. But um, <laughs> the the thing is that, like, in Inquisition, and this is my, like, I really like Inquisition. I think Inquisition is very clever. I think it's very smart. I think it's very well executed. Last 10 it's minutes probably, of Inquisition are good. The, the, the opening yeah. is not particularly, but yeah, go, sorry, go ahead. But um, the thing with Inquisition is that, and the bit that I've never really bought, is the fact that it presents Section 31 as existing separate from Starfleet. It's like, why couldn't you tell that story with Starfleet intelligence? Why did you need to invent a bunch of Gestapo-looking sort of like creepy, um, you know, sort of outside, no record of their existence figures? Why couldn't Sloane be a representative of Starfleet intelligence? And why couldn't he do exactly the same thing that he does in Inquisition? Why do you need to have that barrier that exists between the Federation and Starfleet? And as Odo points out, like, the natural culmination of any galactic like empire or power. You know, the Romulans having the Tel Shiar, the, the Cardassians having the Obsidian Order. Um, Klingons don't really have Klingon intelligence, but that's... I'll, I'll let listeners... What a racist thing to say about one. them, Darren. What a racist, <laughs> horrible thing to say about the Klingons. Uh, but, um, no, but, uh, but basically, yeah, the idea that, like, Section 31 exists independent, and you see that later on as well, where you have, like, they have their own ships in Into Darkness and in Star Trek Discovery, and they basically become this whole weird outside thing that is totally different from Starfleet and totally different from the Federation. And well, let, let me, let vague. me push, let me push back on that, actually, because. No, I, well, I was gonna, I was, I'm going to, oh, sorry, I was going to. But yeah, go, no, go, go ahead. No, I just, I don't, I don't want to forget about the, because I, I see their, their, I see the, the, disconnect between them and starfleet is more of a construct than anything so but if that's what you're talking about go ahead well that was where i was going with this this is why i think this is the best uh, section 31 story because it's the one where it becomes clear that there is no dividing line gotcha where you have admiral ross who is is very much the um the straight lace admiral as clay clay joked he's the one decent admiral who exists in the entire starfleet franchise franchise mm-hmm. he's so straight laced he hasn't even drank romulan ale like he's such a good guy underneath it all He's a genuinely decent person, it seems. Like, and again, you've sort of, you become attuned to him over the two seasons he's been on the show. And like, not to spoil too much, uh, Clay going into the final run of episodes, but he continues to be a decent person through to the end of the run of the show. The show doesn't suddenly reveal that he's like Admiral Doherty or anything like that, or like secretly mm-hmm. plotting to smuggle arms with Cardassians or something nonsense like that. Hey, he's, unless, he's, unless he offers to inexplicably blow himself up. For the sake of saving one person, I, I'm I'm not going to consider him anything less than corrupt. You've written him off now. Yeah, <laughs> you had one shot, Starfleet Admiral Admiralty. One shot. Unless um, he can, yeah. unless he's the only one who can close the blast door from inside the room when that bomb goes <laughs> Button, off. Button's always on the inside. It. It's always on the yeah. inside. Yep. Health and safety. Uh, health and safety, people. But yeah, but my my point is more that like this is inter armenum son legas is the one where Starfleet is really really thoroughly implicated in what Section 31 is doing. You have Cisco stating from the outset that they've completely blind, they've completely turned a blind eye in terms of internal investigation into it. But you also have the revelation that, like, Ross was part of it. And part of me wonders um, if Cisco may also have been possibly passively complicit in this as well. Um, he doesn't really too. get much to do outside of that scene with, like, early on in the episode where he suggests kind of luring them out. But there's a sense in which, and it happens a lot throughout the seventh season, where Cisco... The lines that Cisco crossed in the sixth season in episodes like in The Pale Moonlight, for example, they become 
and I really like how it's done with his character, but they become kind of, they're accepted as part of who he is. He does something in the final run of 10 episodes that the show doesn't make a big deal of, but which is possibly the worst thing that a lead actor on a Star Trek show has ever done. Um, and it, it it's a logical culmination of his arc and it's a logical culmination of where his character's gone. But it's done so simply and without any real kind of, it's not a Cisco story. It's a Cisco story beat in somebody else's story. And there's a sense watching Inter Arma and M. Silent Legis that Section 31 is part of You can, you, you of can just say this episode. You don't have to keep rubbing it in my face. <laughs> um, the, there's a sense in this episode that Section Thank 31 is, is inexorable from Starfleet, that it's, it's a part of Starfleet, that it's a fundamental part of the institution, and there's no getting around it. And again, this feels like a, a culmination of what Deep Space Nine is doing, because the idea of Starfleet and the Federation going back to things like, you know, the, the original Star Trek of the Next Generation is this idea of like Kennedy era American self-image projected into the future. It's the idea of, you know, the, the new frontier becomes the final frontier and all this sort of stuff. But with Section 31, you start getting a bit of the underbelly going on there. You get a bit of like the complication of kind of like the mechanics operating behind the scenes in the American century. And I think that's really great. And what I really love about this is that it doesn't use the compartmentalization excuse that you get in other Section 31 stories. And I think that's why it's the best of the set. That's what I would argue. Cool. The, um, Clay, we've talked before about the uh, DS9 does politics better than any other Star Trek series. Mm-hmm. And this one stuck out to me just because you have the whole Romulan politics scene. Uh, the Romulans also are really kind of the... Um, the punching bag of DS9, kind of interestingly, where oh, they're they're always getting the ones that are getting uh, tricks played on them and murderous tricks. I guess I would say at that too. But I think that the um the politics of this show is always something that it did really well. Like it always portrayed the cultures as very different from each other, and they have their own motivations about the way that they want to go into things. Which is like when the the Federation has an alliance with the Klingons, the Klingons are always in there charging into the battle when the Federation wants to kind of hang back and things like that against the Cardassians mm-hmm. and. It's nice when the show did that kind of stuff. And we've talked before about how like the weaker episodes of this are actually the standalone sci-fi episodes of DS9. Interestingly, it never really does things particularly well when they try to do those. But I think that... You mean Time's Orphan wasn't a classic? No. Then there's so many more that came (laughs) after Time. Time's Orphan is the one that sticks in your mind. But yeah, there's so many, so many awful standalone DS9 episodes towards the end of the series. Um, But I think that the... The politics are interesting, and I guess that I'll ask you, Clay, like, Section 31 to me, and you can compare it to Discovery's version of Section 31, is that I think what they did, which was really clever, which even gets the most, like, diehard Star Trek fan, like a Roddenberry supporter Star Trek fan, is, is there any other culture on the political, geopolitical scale of this series at this point that you would want running the show other than the Federation? You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Like Not, the Fed- the Federation no. is clearly the pinnacle of all of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's uh, yeah, they haven't exactly presented a, a, an alternative um in in this series. Which is, which really is why I think just to. makes section 31 important because like if you if you if you didn't have them, there is no other like, you know, there's no other great uh, conglomerate or whatever that would like be a good universe that you could think of which i think is just kind of a, an interesting little like spin on the uh the entire thing but uh, i don't know you, you can also well, talk about discovery section 31 if you want <laughs> well it's it's interesting because i mean the section 31 is is really kind of a parallel to the obsidian order right 
and the uh, we've talked many times in the past about how the Cardassians, at least initially in Deep Space Nine, were kind of presented as a dark mirror to the Federation. Um, and so I I I find it interesting that they went so literally across the board and and gave them a, a uh, an equivalence to the Obsidian Order who isn't really any different than the Obsidian Order. Um unless unless I'm forgetting something. They they seem to be more or less the same except there's less less uh interagency murder than there is in the Obsidian <laughs> Order. Um but yeah, as far as as far as the way that they're handled in Discovery versus the way that they're handled here um they seem to have a much more concrete idea of what this organization is and how it factors into the story that they're telling and the politics of the stories that they're telling in Deep Space Nine versus Discovery, where they're just a buzzword of something they can use where they need someone to they need someone to look shifty eyed and be and, and be like, You're doing what for Starfleet? Um it's the the level don't forget of, the leather clay don't forget yes the leather. they still have they do have leather a little bit more um intricate leather in, on discovery uh, <laughs> it's hg now um but it's they are discovery's uh section 31 is very much just a it feels just like a a placeholder for you know all the quote unquote t- how do I explain this? Um, it feels to me like a flag put up by the creators of Discovery to uh, really show how morally gray that Discovery is claiming to be um, in in a way that feels kind of like a high schooler wrote it, whereas Section 31 in Deep Space Nine is very integral to the story that they've been telling through all season seven, I mean, seven seasons of the show and is an active pushback to the, uh, the Roddenberry idea, which is obviously um, personified by Bashir, but as we've talked about previously is also personified by Cisco, but in a different way where Cisco is always the one who's questioning it but also but also coming out on the side of 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 Starfleet um he's he's willing to to test the boundaries and it always ends up more or less uh reaffirming his his belief that that he's doing the right thing for the most part even if what he's doing is a little bit you know shifty um but yeah I think I think they are just such they're they're such a more organic and well-used thing i let's put it this way they've shown up in two episodes of, the, of deep space nine three uh two 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 at this point two. Yeah. Two i feel point. i feel like i have a better understanding of who section 31 is how they uh play into the story and the politics that surround them way better than anything they've done in discovery because it's just it's just all flash in discovery whereas here it's actually baked into the to, to the dna of the show yeah it's not polished leather it's just that 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 yes. rough rough that rawhide leather that's strapped on themselves i I'm, I'm, thank you for the image there thank I'm, you for the image I'm, I'm curious um strapped pulled tight i'm curious leather. squeaky leather is 
Like this is kind I'm of outside. I'm having images seven in my head. Thank you very much. Sorry. <laughs> this is kind Original of outside X-Men of it, but I think it's, it's interesting. Leather. What's um, is Section Thirty One immoral to you guys? <sighs> I think they're necessary. Is probably where the show comes down on. Um, yeah, and probably what I would agree in that, as you pointed out, the like the thing with Deep Space Nine and with the Federation is that. You made the, the argument that, again, Deep Space Nine never makes an argument for an alternative to the Federation, which I think is kind of its strength. And one of the things that marks it, as as you pointed out, nowhere near as cynical as many of its detractors would claim. The thing about Deep Space Nine, which I've really liked and which I think speaks to its credit and marks it as a true Star Trek show in inverted commas, in the sense of like this this kind of idea of a humanist philosophy and kind of you know liberalism and idealism and kind of a utopian future is, and what distinguishes it from, say, The Next Generation or, say, Voyager, is that Deep Space Nine honestly treats its universe, and this gets back to the politics stuff you're talking about, as a marketplace of ideas. And the idea is that you come to Deep Space Nine and you can make an argument for your culture, and that argument is entirely relative. And you get to know the Cardassians over the course of the show. You learned a bit about the Klingons from The Next Generation, but you really embrace them here. Uh, the Bajorans have their own religious belief systems, and they all come together and they all mingle And one of the things that comes out across the run of Deep Space Nine, and I find it kind of like the most optimistic and uplifting thing about Deep Space Nine, and probably like why the show, despite giving Bashir a bit of a light kicking here, is probably on Bashir's side on the grand scheme of things, is that the show never allows, as you point out, any other culture to make a stronger argument. But generally speaking, when those cultures come together and when they come into the melting pot and when those ideas are thrown into the free marketplace of ideas, it's always, generally speaking... Federation liberalism that wins out. Like, this episode opens, as, as Clay pointed out, with that conversation... No, it doesn't open with the conversation between Garrick and, and Bashir, but one of the first scenes of the teaser is the conversation with Garrick and Bashir. And it's worth looking at the relationship between Garrick and Bashir over the course of the show, because they meet in the second episode, in past prologue. And there's this push and pull between them, where Bashir wants Garrick... You know, he wants to know about Garrick's past, but he also wants to reach out to him and be his friend, and through that, change Garrick. At the same time, as Garrick alludes to here, Garrick wants to kind of, and again, there's, we're talking about leather and strap-ons and stuff like that, but, you know, the sense in which Garrick wants we to were. corrupt Bashir, <laughs> morally, <laughs> I wasn't, but those, those words were thrown out. Um, but, uh, like, the sense that, like, Garrick wants to corrupt Bashir, and not necessarily in kind of a slash fiction sort of way, although Andrew Robinson has said that, you know, he, he wished he'd played up that aspect more, mm. but in more of a kind of a, like, we're batting ideas here, we're trading literature. I'll ask you to read Julius Caesar, and you can read The Neverending Sacrifice, and we'll have coffee, and we'll meet, and we'll discuss how we see the universe. And at the end of Deep Space Nine, right? At the end of Deep Space Nine, and we're, we're almost there anyway, you have Bashir and you have Garrick. Bashir, at the end of Deep Space Nine, believes pretty much the same thing that he does at the start. He still believes people are fundamentally good. He still believes in decency. He still believes that the universe would be a better place if everybody got along and trusted one another. Garrick, on the other hand, who started out as this Cardassian patriot who'd been exiled and longed to go home and like was cynical and mistrustful of the Federation and wanted to, you know, to a certain extent, wanted to rebuild the Cardassian Empire. He spends a significant stretch of the first two seasons betraying Starfleet or betraying, sort of like cooperating or trying to get home. At the end of Deep Space Nine, it's made very clear that Garrick can't go home because he's not the same person that he was because he's been exposed to Bashir's ideas. Like, Deep Space Nine, for all that it is cynical and wary, and for all that it kind of goes, you know, maybe the extreme form of kind of, like, humanism and utopianism that Roddenberry preached, you know, isn't the answer. 
It genuinely believes that in the grand scheme of things, if you throw all these ideas out there, all these different ways of looking at the universe, all these different perspectives and viewpoints, eventually, when you throw them all into a mix, people will end up embracing the better ideas. They'll end up embracing the ideas that are more optimistic, that are more humanist. You know, the the very term is racist, but the idea that is is more kind of like optimistic and idealistic. Um, and I think that kind of, you can see that even here with, with Garrick and Bashir, because Garrick, they have that exchange where he's like, you know, one of these days, you know, you'll, uh, you'll learn to be as cynical and world weary as I am. And, you know, there's a sense of joking because they both know that will never be the case. And I, I find something very, very kind of like affecting about that. Do you guys, uh, uh, Clay, I'll ask, I can lead you and then to Darren. Do you guys think that, um, all this conversation about this has led me to think about the Dominion, actually, who have been a little bit sidelined. And I, I, th- I'll lead with my opinion. I think that the show actually didn't do a very good job of demonstrating the Dominion's ideology in a way that makes it clash against the Federation's value. Like, you mm. you approach them as the enemy because the show tells you they're the enemy and they're fighting you and they show up and yeah. they do it and they're, they're fascist and everything like that. But they, the show doesn't really play up what a Dominion universe would look like under their control like you don't get that much of an input into how dominion politics work or anything like that you understand that the founders boss everybody around and they're genetic manipulators but you don't you don't really feel their ideology i would say and i think that what's interesting about section 31 is that section 31 is a halfway step to the founders and Mm. if you wanted to compare them you could say that section like we can't the argument against section 31 for the characters should be we can't be like section 31 because section 31 tells us what is right and that they're doing the right thing much like the founders tell the jemhadar and the vorta that they're doing the right thing and it's interesting that they don't do it i think it's mostly a weakness of the dominion portrayal actually but you can go off that clay and darren whatever you think about it too yeah um I I uh I feel like they treat the Dominion kind of like they treat the Empire in Star Wars because we you know we were just talking about yeah, Rogue very One similar. last night yeah. and we brought up how one of the the problems with expanding Star Wars out is that the Empire is never really given much um political stance like we don't really know what they're out there doing or other than the fact that they're bad and they just control everything there's not that's about it. Um, you don't know why they want to control things. Right. Other than, you know, the emperor is a dark demon elf or, yeah. you know, whatever it is. <laughs> Unlimited um, power. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but how did he get that weird face? Um, <laughs> and I think the Dominion, who also have weird faces, uh, they are kind of treated in the same way, but they do have this weird – and maybe I was incorrect about uh, – the Cardassians being the mirror to Starfleet, because I think we've talked about the Dominion being kind of a mirror to Starfleet, because they're kind of doing the same thing that Starfleet's doing, except with a much more uh, authoritarian bent to it. I mean, and, even the Vorta are Vulcans, basically, with their pointy yeah. ears and psychic powers. <clears throat> the Vulcans have psychic powers? Mind melds. Oh, oh yeah, okay. Mind sure, melds yeah. and ESPs and like the ability to sense across distances, depending on you know how trippy we're feeling in the oh, Star Trek writers from the 60s. Oh. That's oh cool. yeah, Spock's the this stuff with Spock in the original Star Trek is very psychedelic. No, oh, I, I, I would argue. I wonder why they played that down. <laughs> um, the nineties were a very different time. Yeah, um, uh, but yeah, it's 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 interesting because they the Dominion is is such a big presence, but it isn't really dealt with on a small scale like this. Like like you're saying, Wes, and I I wonder if that's just a 
if that's because they I don't I don't really know. I I don't really know what the answer to that is. Um is it just a lack of portray- like I I guess it's just you never get behind the scenes with the Dominion. I don't know if you have any yeah. thoughts about it Darren, but Yeah, I mean the, the thing with the Dominion I suspect is is mostly a practical writing thing, which is that like if you were going to do that and you can kind of see outlines of it uh in the second season of the show which is a point where Deep Space Nine was still figuring out what it wanted to be. The second season of the show is the one where you get the little hints and footprints of the Dominion, where you get to see the fact that, you know, almost everybody who does business in the Gamma Quadrant does business through the Dominion. And they exist independently, and nobody's ever even seen a founder, but they operate with an understanding that everything that they do flows through the Dominion. So, you know, if your planet has been wiped out, that's because the Dominion was there. If you're trying to negotiate the shipping of a Tula wine, um, you need to get the Dominion sign-off in order to send the proper amounts of it. Even though the characters in question at that point have never actually met any Dominion kind of individuals. And it feels like by the time the show figures out what it's doing properly in the fourth season. And you can kind of, you can arguably see it in there in Starship Down where the Karama show up and they're like, gee, I hope the Dominion don't find out that we're doing business with you guys. Um, but by that stage, it's almost too late because at that point in the game, the Dominion are the enemy and they're the force in which you define yourself in opposition to, even though arguably their internal hierarchy and structure hasn't been as clearly defined as it might be. I don't have that big an issue with it because i think that you can kind of infer a lot of it and i think that you can it works well enough in terms of being the opposite of starfleet and the federation Mm. you get stuff like them swallowing cardassia which is very much the opposite of what the federation should be trying to do with bajor and has like at this point in the game decided it's not doing with sorry apologies with bajor um to use the pronunciation (laughs) sloan's wonderful pronunciation bajor Um, bajor I thought it was I thought it was Pajoran yeah, for Pajorans, like five yeah. episodes. The, so. the wrath of the, the listeners have never forgiven yeah. you for that mistake. Uh, but yeah, so like you have this idea that like the, the basic premise of Deep Space Nine starting is that like Starfleet's going to bring in Bajor. And like the show drifts away from that, and it doesn't necessarily drift away from that in an entirely successful way, because you get a sense of the writers being like well, we can't say that indoctrinating Bajor into the Federation is a bad idea. We can just hint at it really, really, really clearly in Rapture. Um, and you have that process kind of contrasted with what happens with Cardassia and the Dominion, where Cardassia is swallowed whole by this gigantic entity, which promises that it will make them a, this galactic superpower, uh, and then just kind of exploits them and kind of, you know, takes advantage of them and kind of, you know, treats them as cannon fodder and kind of ground, grounds them into the dirt. Which works, you know, again, it's something where you can see the idea working better than the execution, where you can kind of see the thematic elements and how they mirror one another, even if the show doesn't necessarily connect the dots as strongly uh, as it might, I think. And I think, I think it, I think the Dominion works so well because the world building is just so strong. Like, I, I think they give you bits and pieces of it, like you were saying, Darren, before they really uh, introduce the Dominion. Um, to kind of do a lot of uh, uh, dot connecting for you, even if it's not like literal, it's not super tight, but it's like you, they are building the world in which the dominion exists and operate in such a way that it allows them. Once they do show up, you kind of already know what their deal is. Once you figure out what their arch plan is, that's enough. You've, you, they've laid the groundwork to make it feel like it is a, uh, this 
organization or entity that is that people are living with and that is that is 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 influencing things and pressing on things and it also kind of you get into the the issue where um you know i i I always look at the avengers the first avengers movie as a good example of this where uh all you in the avengers movie you know loki's the bad guy and that he's trying to take over earth for some reason and he shows up with a bunch of disposable punching guys at the end and it works because that is just essentially the catalyst for the politicking among the Avengers characters. And that's kind of what is going on here, I think, is that the Dominion, even though we don't know the ins and outs of, of their politics and their endgame and blah, 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 their setup is strong enough and their their presence is strong enough that it supports all of the actual story that they're telling, which is the politicking among the planets and, and among the different people and how how that how this war affects how they are interacting with each other and it's not necessarily about like who's running for you know viceroy in the dominion council or something you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah i just i feel that the, the the dominion becomes ships and jem'hadar soldiers later in the series like they're just a force that the starfleet characters are kind of fighting against and mm-hmm. i i i think that they're their ideology is actually the strongest part of it, and I think it's the thing that best suits DS9 as a series to explore. But they just kind of become cannon fodder later on, and even the mm. the most behind-the-scenes you get are kind of endless scenes of Wayun and Damar talking to each other, where it's just those two. Like, there's no... There's no other influence on them. It's just like they seem to be the brain trust. And they send, yeah, they, they send in a bunch of um, Jemadar to do their dirty work for them and stuff. And I kind of miss it. I, I think it's just underutilized. I think that they could have fleshed out that side more, especially in a series that seems so interested with those ideas. Like, what what does mm. it mean to contrast? Why is it a better idea for Starfleet to forcefully spread its ideology, but the Dominion is a bad idea to do the same thing? Like, they don't oh, really... Definitely flesh out the dominion they do they flesh them out but i think that they had more uh landing room to go with that idea yeah i i think that i i've felt the same way going through and i think we've we've talked about it every now and then about how uh the dominion war has been going on for like three seasons now Mm -hmm. is that uh, roughly i think two they've been at war for two seasons Yeah. yeah and they spend a lot of time not talking about the dominion or yes. not talking about the stuff that's going on, and they've got this great catalyst for for ideas and and conflict and drama that is just sort of not really being used that much. Uh, you've got a lot of standalone episodes that are, you know, maybe they'll offhandedly mention the Dominion or the Jem'Hadar, but it's not really about any of that stuff. And for a show that whose bread and butter is very much. Uh, uh, ideology versus ideology. Clearly, what the show of, does best. It's clearly yeah, oh, the absolutely. approach that they, they do best. Yeah, and um, I'm surprised that they didn't dig into that a little bit more. Um, and just sort of to jump back about uh, people talking about this being the most cynical um, Star Trek series. I think what makes it so great is that while it seems cynical on the surface, and much like we talked about with with the character of Cisco. They are not just going, this is the Roddenberry vision of the future. Isn't everything great? And aren't we always right? They're actively field testing it. They're yeah. taking it out into the they're taking it out into the into the wild and putting pressures on it from all different sides to see does this ideology hold up? 
And the thing that makes it such a great Star Trek show is when it comes out the other end and they go, yes, it does. Yeah. 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 I would agree with that entirely. Um, And actually, yeah, just just to get back to that thing about the kind of the arcs and stuff, part of me just does acknowledge the fact that this is a kind of a Star Trek show airing in the in the 90s. And like I, I would like this is one of the reasons why I am less fond of the sixth season than most people. I think that among Deep Space Nine fans, there's a consensus that the sixth season is one of the show's best seasons. I'm less fond of it. I, I actually prefer the seventh season or the fifth season because the sixth season does hit that problem where it's like you have six episodes of the Dominion War and it's like, well, what now? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Have we done enough Molly's time portal stories? Yeah, yeah. So let's get yeah. some time portals. <laughs> Mol- Molly's now a grown up or Quark is now a woman. Um, and these are the plots that we're running. Go on. With. Um, <laughs> Tell me more. Um, could I have, yeah, an, could I have an outline much, for that one by the end of the day? Yeah. How much leather is involved? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and what is getting... Anyway, never mind. Um, but like that, that is one of my issues with, say, the sixth season, is that it begins this sort of like story arc, and it, it then hits the wall of having to be episodic television. And uh, to be fair, I think Deep Space Nine handles it relatively well. You get little scenes and even episodes like The Reckoning, where you have debates about what's happening with the Romulans that keep that stuff relatively fresh. But yeah, it is an issue that the show couldn't go full serialization. But Clay, I think Wes has quite a surprise waiting for you next week, if that's your sort of big concern going into the end of Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Is it a cake? I hope it's a cake. <laughs> I think, I think Darren, both me and Clay would say, well, I can't speak for Clay, I'll speak for myself. I think that the, I think that the last two seasons of DS9 are actually somewhat overrated by the fandom. Um, I think that they, I think that they manage 25% of the episodes to be really fantastic and the rest of them are actually fairly not that great in a lot of ways. Like I think that they the show feels like it's running out of gas in a way that TNG didn't just by the fact that the episodes when they're not firing in season six and seven of DS9 really feel like misfires at that point for the show. It's surprising mm-hmm. that the show is putting out episodes yeah. like that. And I, I think that my favorite DS9 season is actually season four. Um, because I think that they were just so consistent that year when they brought in yeah. Worf. And yeah, it's it's an, it's an interesting just segue. It's like you can understand why people enjoy watching a condensed version of DS9 because you could just you could get rid of all these weird time portal episodes and just stick with the stuff that the show actually does well. Do it as a like a set of 13 episode seasons and it would be amazing. It would be probably the mm. best TV show ever made. No, yeah. okay, maybe not that, but it would be... Uh, a much more consistent run. I would agree. I think I actually slightly prefer five to four, but yeah, I think four and five are the show's peaks. Have, I do like seven. Have we talked about, I feel like we may have talked about this previously, about what you would prefer as as far as a Star Trek season goes, one that it has very drastic highs and lows, or one that is kind of more down the middle? Yeah, I prefer, I mean, season six is that high and low for me, and I prefer yeah. season four to it. Yeah, yeah. But that that's consistently high. That's cheating. Um, that's, that, that, that's, that's true. Much- <laughs> there, there is no there is like if it was a season of threes on our scale, I guess that would be pretty bad. I mean, I'm I'm viewing consistent as like they're all like fours basically. There's no fives, but there is a lot oh, of like really yeah. good. Yeah, I'm episodes thinking like the in. difference between a season where you go, oh man, that was really good, and then you go, oh, that was really bad, versus a season where you go, yeah, that was pretty good, and then when, one where you go, yeah, well, in terms okay. of the podcast, I'd rather have the extreme highs and lows, but maybe That's as a true. viewer, yeah. I'd be I'd be different and like, well, you know, yeah, because I mean, I feel like we did have a run where it was at least I was giving them like a lot of threes yep. right down the down the middle, and I was getting kind of bored. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
waiting for like, oh, well, yeah, well then after you finish the Deep Space Nine podcast, does Wes have a surprise for you when you're doing Star Trek Voyager? Oh yeah, consistency. Clay, just to let you know, we're approximately 28% of the way through every Star Trek episode that's ever been made, so... It only gets better from here, my friend. We're only 28% No, that's through. a lie. I have no idea how far we are. Oh, my God. <laughs> so only, how many, well, how many seasons me. of Voyager were there? <laughs> that's what I'm when you get halfway through Voyager, it will feel like you were 28% of the way through. <laughs> I, I reviewed awesome. every episode of Voyager, and I have to say, no season of Star Trek. It's not the worst season of Star Trek ever, by any stretch of the imagination. Series or season, the do you fir- uh, season. Uh, so, like, I'm just sorry. Like, in terms of like, I reviewed Voyager episode by episode. Um, and I hit the seventh season. And the seventh season of Voyager is not the worst season of Star Trek ever made. It's not even the worst season of Voyager ever made. But dear God, was it the longest experience of my life watching yeah. that season? Um, <laughs> I'll tell you. I tried to watch. I went and I watched the the series finale because I'd never seen it, and uh, it seemed kind of interesting. And even that just felt like the longest two hours of my life. I, 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 think, I don't even think I finished it. I think I fell asleep about halfway through. It's two hours and somehow it's still three hours too long. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll get to it. Maybe. We'll say up to you, patrons. But let's take a break. I'm going to play an audio clip. Then me, Clay, and Darren are going to come back. We'll read some patron thoughts and give our final thoughts about Inter Arma, Item Sealant Legus. I just wanted to say thank you. For what? Allowing you to manipulate me so completely. For being a decent human being. That's why we selected you in the first place, Doctor. We needed somebody who wanted to play the game, but who'd only go so far. When the time came, you stood your ground. You did the right thing. You reached out to an enemy, you told her the truth. You tried to stop a murder. Federation needs men like you, Doctor. Men of conscience, men of principle. Men who can sleep at night. You're also the reason Section 31 exists. Someone has to protect men like you from a universe that doesn't share your sense of right and wrong. Should I feel sorry for you? Should I be weeping over the burden you are forced to carry in order to protect the rest of us? It is an honor to know you, Doctor. Good night. All right, everybody. So if you support the show or you want to support the show, it's much appreciated. We'd be very happy if you wanted to do that. The best way to do it is to go to patreon.com slash the Penske file. Give a couple dollars a month and you get extra stuff. We just covered Black Mirror's first season. We did all three episodes of that. We've got movies up there. There's about 60 podcasts at this point that you can go back and check out if you're interested. And it keeps the show running, keeps the lights on, keeps our internet connections do we, strong. Do we have a, a total count? of episodes across all shows that we've done uh for the podcast you mean yeah uh no but i could easily add it for you um it's 176 tng we did 40 something tos and 176 of ds9 wow (laughs) (laughs) clay's just gonna sit there in stunned silence for the rest of this uh, episode but let me finish my spiel here captain tier supporters on patreon if you want that to be a selling point for me to continue into Voyager, uh, it's not working. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Tier supporters on Patreon get a special thank you and a special shout out. Andrew Cherlog, Ben Douglas, Captain Quark, Cardinal Doomsday, Christian Michaels, Christian Pouch, Darth Moss, David Beardmore, David K, Dwayne Hackett, Eric Johnson, HH28, IC Unicorns, Yarpy, 
Joint Mango, Jordan Cooper, Kevin Reyes, Cal Barrett, Matt Courier, Six, Matt Cutler, Matt Ross, Mike Burnett, Nathan Elliott, Neil Brennan, Nick Serger, Robert Cummins, Russell wow. Elliott, Sam Custer, Grim Santos, Sean Spinobi, Tark Latif, Tom Hiles, Ball 13 here on Will Yates. <gasps> there we go. Thank you very much, guys, <laughs> for supporting the show. It is truly appreciated. You guys are great. Now let's go to Patreon comments. If you support the uh, show on Patreon, you can leave some thoughts about upcoming episodes and we read them. I'm going to go to the first one here. I might do some light editing because we're running long on this one, but Vault 13 Hero says, Actually, one of my favorite episodes of the season, a good spy twist story, and I really enjoy how Sloan is played in the episode. Admiral Ross being in on it from the beginning is an interesting look at how pervasive Section 31 is in Starfleet intelligence. The actor playing Koval is great, too. I give it a 5 out of 5. Better than anything Discovery has ever done regarding Section 31. <laughs> Sam Nuclear Wessel says, DS9 continues its tradition of stealing great stories, this time a John Le Carre novel that I won't identify as to not spoil it. And that infusion of Cold War ruthlessness shakes up the 24th century nicely. Of all the stuff we see Sloan do, this is to me the most reprehensible, but completely in character. It is... Hmm. I didn't... That's interesting. Is I wonder, uh, is the title Inter Arma Item Sealant Legis, is that like supposed to be a... Uh, similar to the title of said novel? Because there is a John Le Carre novel with a similar title that's obviously not in Latin, but... Oh, apparently it was taken by Ronald D. Moore from a biography of uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, that he was reading at the time. Hmm. Or at least that's his his version or his accounting of events. Well, the car has the same, okay. the same description. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I don't. I don't care about spoiling. Is it supposed to sound like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy? I don't know. That that no, comment no. has has left me mystified. Yeah, I, I didn't Much think like it had a Tinker Tailor. The Soldier mysteries Spy. of John Le Carre. <laughs> um, I'll put in an edit as to what actually we're talking about so we, we sound like we're knowledgeable. Point Extra G says, Admiral Ross has been much of a decent guy up to this point. Starfleet admirals are never as good as Ross, and we knew he had to have an ugly side. I don't recall Julian and Ross being paired before, but I think it worked pretty decently. Also, DS9 gets to borrow the Voyager sets for an entire episode. Norman Buckwald says, This is the definitive Section 31 episode. If only the Discovery writers watch this one to remind them established lore and then adapt that from there. The twists in the episode are well-earned and well-written, and it's near flawless. Sloane will always be the character who should be defining Section 31 in all its dark glory. Aside from maybe the quickening, this is the definitive Bashir episode as well. Well Well-acted, well-written, and well-paced. Five out of five. This would easily fall into one of my top ten DS9 episodes. Now, if there were a way, uh, if there was a way through an afterward through afterward, Garrett could have worked. Sorry. Now, if there was a way through an afterward, Garrett could have worked in that it would have been even more gold. Interestingly enough, it seems Bashir never tells Garrick about Section Thirty One. I almost wanted Garrick to sense and wonder if Bashir is now the one keeping the secrets. That that actually does kind of bring up something that I did want to mention. Is this the last time we see Section Thirty One in the series? That would be a spoiler, right? Yeah, you can tell right. me, Darren. He just, just you can give him a yes or no. Yes. Oh, sorry, no, no, it's not. No, it's not the last. No, time. they it's have okay. a um, they have an impact on the final arc. They have an involvement. Yes. Do is is Garrick ever? Does Garrick ever cross paths with Section Thirty One? No, Garrick is off the station by that. Okay, because I feel like that's a bit of a missed opportunity to have because because Section Thirty One is such feels like such an analog to the Obsidian Order. Mm. Not not to have him involved, it seems like they could have had a pretty interesting You know what I would there. have done with this one? I would have had a little tag on this episode where Sloane is drinking in Quarks and Garrett comes up to him and they just start talking to each other. You know, mm-hmm. th- this is not saying, I'm not saying this would actually work, but I could see something like that being inserted where it's one of those like Wire Season 3 where Stringer and uh, 
Avon are setting each other up, but they're not talking about it in that way. Well, while they are talking, they know that they're setting each other up. I feel like this is the same. You could have the same scene between these two where they're aware of what the other one is, but they're not acknowledging it. Have them have them cross paths and introduce each other. And then Garrick's like, and what do you do? And he's like, I'm a cartographer. And you? I'm a tailor. And they're like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) right, exactly. As they're wearing terrible clothes, and he's like, "So, how do I get out of here? Uh, what's the yeah. what's where's the exit?" <laughs> Captain Quirk says, the "Blue couldn't miss the from what I understand, the sector, <laughs> sector. From what I understand, the blue part is land. <laughs> <laughs> these uh, these little blue lines are streets, I think." <laughs> Captain Quirk says, "It may be morbid to say, but I enjoyed watching Sloan use Bashir's TNG style idealism to entrap an innocent woman." All the scenes between the two are great, doing no small part to William Sadler's performance. In fact, I thought the most of the guest cast was terrific. Adrian Barbeau brought a lot of personality to what have been good, could have been a dull character. John Fleck played Koval like a real miserable prick, which makes sense given his position and health problems. It's also nice to see Barry Jenner's Admiral <laughs> Ross get more screen time. I sure I could probably pit, nitpick the plot if I thought hard about it, but all in all, it's a terrific espionage story. Alex Bogut says, this in many ways is the true thematic finale to DS9. Now that the victory in the war is becoming apparent, scheming for the next confrontation, just like in the real Cold War, has begun. Bashir represents the traditional idealistic views of Roddenberry and the Founding Fathers, while Sloan and Admiral Ross represent in many ways the post-9-11 ends justify the means approach that America has taken. Indeed, it is telling that Bashir simply resigns to being defeated when Sloan shows up to gloat in the last scene. Yes, indeed, America has become similar to the Roman Empire, and idealists are just getting in the way of getting the job done. Ironic that many Americans are still in denial about it. A brilliant plot, both by the writers and by Sloan. Um, um, uh, not, not to jump in okay. again, but... Uh, do you, do you want to jump I, in there, Clay? Sorry. Can I ask you guys a question? Do you, are, are, do you like the idea that Section 31 has been there since the beginning, or do you prefer it to be something that they realized that they needed as, they went, as Starfleet went along? They should have realized as they needed it. They, 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 That's I, yeah. I kind of like the idea that it's been there all along in the background, and while Picard's been going about and you know, sort of like in his galaxy class ship, spreading the best ideals of the Federation, mm-hmm. Sloan has been in the background to push a Romulan down a turbo shot. Well, turbo I guess I'm shaft. talking. I'm talking more like uh, post founding. You, know, you mean? Yeah. So I mean, they show up in Discovery, and they apparently are a completely. Uh, What's the word? Uh, already established autonomous? entity, oh. yeah, autonomous entity. So, uh, and I want, and I'm wondering, like, it, it feels like it's something that should have not come up until later. Like it, it almost feels like Section 31 should have come about as a result of the Klingon War that happens in. Yeah, Discovery, I, I, you I know? think you could make an argument that you could understand why Section 31 would have come out of the Romulan War, which is a very early war that the Federation had. That were, they were kind of like unaware that there were you know, other hostile forces out there and they kind of got into this huge engagement. You could see something like Section 31 being a response to that idealism that they had going into it, where we started this war because we didn't know what was going on. So let's have this organization that operates in the shadows. We can still have our appearance of being on the up and up, but we need protection yeah. from that again. Yeah. Yeah. The RP- um, just on the- Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go for it. No, you go ahead. Sorry, you, go- you go ahead. I'll go to the next comment after you're done. Okay, what I was going to say was just in response to that comment there, actually, which is one of the things that I really, really like about the Romulans, because you mentioned it during the podcast, and you talked about how the Romulans are kind of vaguely defined and how they're a punching bag for Deep Space Nine, where they are repeatedly and consistently humiliated at every opportunity. You know, they're lured into the, and the attack on the founders. <laughs> yeah, they're lured into the attack on the founders uh, by, you know, Tane, and their Romulan representative was a changeling all along. 
Or, you know, they get into a standoff over a Bajoran moon and they get beaten by the feckin' Bajorans, for example. But even things like, you know, the character of Tyrol who disappears in the middle of the third season, who's like, hey, this cloaking device on the Divine, I guess we don't really have to answer for that anymore. One of the things that I really like about Deep Space Nine's use of the Romulans is that the Romulans in Star Trek never really had a particularly strong identity. You can argue that maybe they did for a time on The Next Generation, but they've always been space Romans, basically. And they've always been, whereas the Klingons have been like, you know, stand-ins for, you know, Russia or stand-ins for China or whatever. The Romulans have always kind of just been the other iconic Star Trek aliens. And one of the things that I find interesting in the way that Deep Space Nine uses them is that the Romulans have always been just the vaguely shifty ones. They're the ones who have the cloaking devices on the original series. They're the ones who are like Rom, like, sorry, like Vulcans and so can pass. Um, they're the ones like on the next generation who are always scheming and plotting and undermining and doing, doing underhand things. One of the things that I really like about like Deep Space Nine's as- approach to them is that the Romulans become redundant. Like on the world of Deep Space Nine, you no longer need a race of aliens whose entire hat is, well, they're kind of shifty. Because on Deep Space Nine, everybody is developed to the point where they are kind of shifty. And one of the things that, like, I think one of the reasons why Inter Arma NM Silent Legas, apologies, Clay, uh, works for me so well is because it effectively makes the argument that there is no real difference between the Federation and the Romulan Star Empire. The Romulans who have arguably served as kind of a dark mirror of this, like we talked about how the Federation is Kennedy era liberalism taken into the future. You know, the new frontier becomes the final frontier. The Romulans are space Rome. They're this idea of, and again, kind of the comment alluded to it there, the idea of the dark side of that, which is the idea that, you know, is America a modern day Roman empire? Is it sort of this huge kind of influential force, which enforces its will on the world? And is it shifty and shady and can't be trusted? It's it's the dark twisted mirror of the Federation. And one of the things that I think that this episode does particularly well is that it kind of collapses the difference between them. And you see that even in the use of Latin, like the use of the quote, which is from Cicero. Uh, which is, you know, uh, and, and Bashir's description of Starfleet or the Federation as a 24th century Rome. So I like the idea that, like, the sum total of Deep Space Nine's point is that the Romulans are kind of useless because the whole point of the Romulans is to be shifty <laughs> bastards. Um, but everybody is a shifty bastard. We're shiftier um, than so, they are at this point. Everyone <laughs> that, is that's, shiftier. That's an, yeah. yeah. Um, which I really, really like. I think it's a very clever point to end on. It kind of illustrates how far or how more nuanced the portrayal of Earth and the Federation and Starfleet and this idea of 24th century utopianism has come, uh, that the, the Romulans are basically surplus to requirement. It's telling that, like, directly after this, you have Nemesis, in which Picard's clone shows up, massacres them, takes control of them, and leads them into a war that destroys them, and then Star Trek 2009, like, literally blows them off. <laughs> yeah, he just wipes them <laughs> off the board. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it's like, yeah, the Romulans are now surplus to requirement in the Star Trek canon, uh, which is a nice sort of end note for this episode, I think. Yarpy says, great episode, William Sadler is great as Sloan, who knows just how to give enough intrigue to Bashir to, do, to, to get him to work for him, and how effective Sloan is playing with Bashir. Other guest stars are very good, too. The episode gives a nice picture of Romulan politics and the uneasy relationship between the rest of Starfleet and the Federation in Section 31, but it feels like they might have left it a little bit too late in the show. Instead of getting those shit episodes with Esri, they could have given us a short arc with Section 31. Shame we won't be seeing any more of Adrienne Barbeau, as she's quite a good actress. A five out of five. Matthew Ross says, one of the best episodes of the entire series. Is Section 31 even real? Is Sloane dead? 
Bashir's naivete is on full display. Now we argue the entire DS9 crew's belief about Section 31. Things aren't always so rosy. Cisco himself is complicit in a war crime with the Maquis and later in the murder to get the Romulans involved. Well played hands all around. Even viewing again, it kept me guessing. Was Ross in on it? Was it possibly, was he even possibly Sloan? Sadler's portrayal of Sloan is delightfully insidious, making you unsure if you should hate him or not. It's an enjoyable and essential episode. Neil Brennan says, Great stuff. A pity that such quality acting and writing are shoved into one episode. That's right. I'm saying that Inter Arma uh, Enum Silent Legus should have been made into Inter Arma Enum Silent Legus Part 1 and Part 2. I'm not going to say it the second time he wrote it out, though. Um, Kyle Barrett says, Enter Arma Enum Silent Legus. What a wonderfully pretentious title that I'm looking forward to hearing Wes have to say several times in the podcast. And thankfully, Bashir doesn't have the mathematical skills of Carol Vorderman, as seen in previous episodes. He keeps mentioning this Vorderman character. I have no idea what he's talking about. But also, the oh, she's a British celebrity. She uh, she hosts the show called Countdown, and she's famous for working at the maths uh, incredibly quickly. <laughs> a, a genius. Um, sorry, there's some cultural context for you. Sorry, but also the lexo lexicographical skills of Susie Dent allowing him to explain what the title means to dummies like me. I like this episode, mainly because I enjoy seeing Bashir, probably still the most classically Star Trek character on the show, have to deal with very unroddenberry ideals. Although I can't give the episode more than a four, because I'm not entirely sure I understand what was actually going on, but I did like it. Final comment. Lou Yates. Another great genre episode. Sadler is a wonderful character actor and really brought Sloane to life. One of my favorite character moments is when we learn that Sloane likes to be fruit and wrong, since I imagine that his profession about being wrong... Uh, being wrong about someone only makes the day better. I thought the way Koval smiled when he invited Bashir to the torture changer was sublime, and it's excellent to see the difference between the Cardassians and the Romulan interrogations, especially when Koval says that he wouldn't bother with unnecessary questions. I guess even being violently tortured for information, there's still a better or worse dimension to it. The final monologue from Sloan about the need for his existence was bloody brilliant, especially juxtaposed against Bashir's uh, waning naivete, sorry for my reading, about the nature of freedom. Paired with In the Pale Moonlight, this is a much different federation than we've ever seen, but one that almost must exist for the rest to function. Thank you, patrons, for your thoughts. Much appreciated. Thank you for supporting the show, and thank you for talking with us about it, or at least letting uh, me read your conversations. Clay, what are you going to give this one on our scale of one to five? Uh, I'm going to give it a five, and I'm also going to give a big five to uh, whoever the transporter guy was that beamed Sloan out of there before he got blasted by a phaser blast. Did, why didn't they just bring back the teleporting bullets? Shoot Sloan with the teleporting <laughs> bullets and bullet and get him out of there. Yeah. So so the teleporter the, the bullet that teleports. Yeah. So in but that case, they, the teleporter doesn't activate until yeah. after you get shot. Well, you have to do that split timing of it hits you and then you get beamed out of there before it tears a hole in your chest and then you're going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah, does I mean, the bullet beam to you, and then you beam away from the bullet because that seems redundant. You could just not fire. I, I the would gun, do something right? like that. Yeah, I just want to see that gun again. I want to see that Vulcan murdering people, and I think everything would be fine in this universe. <laughs> Clay's going to give it a five. Darren, what are you going to give it on a scale of one to five? One is absolute garbage. Five is an all-time classic. I'm going to give it like a five out of five. Bashir Stone Cold figures out how to murder Koval and casually boasts about it to Ross on the scale there you go which is one of the one of the details that i love that we didn't really touch on which is like <laughs> where bashir is talking to ross and he's like oh by the way i figured out like not only did i figure out like what sloan's planning 
I figured out exactly how he could do it and get away with it. Yes, uh, in case anybody's wondering, because I'm was, so smart. <laughs> that was the moment where I thought that I didn't, it didn't end up playing out the way I thought it was going to, but that was the moment where I was like, oh, Ro- was it Ross? Admiral Ross? Yeah, Admiral Ross, yeah. That That's the moment that he has to be in on it, because like, obviously the next step in my head was he the guy gets killed exactly the way that Bashir just explained, because he wouldn't tell Sloan how to do it, <laughs> but he told it to Ross, and Ross was like, okay, keep talking into this plant. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Ross just stops, t- starts taking notes in the middle of the conversation. Yeah. Oh, just, just, just busy. I need, I need what kind of radiation? Hold on. <laughs> yeah. Which is, again, a wonderful, naive Bashir moment. Because, again, like the whole plot hinges on Bashir being very smart, but also incredibly stupid and not yeah. understanding people. I'm also, I'm also going to give this one a five out of five. It's one of my favorites of the season, at the very least. And I think it's a perfect way to wrap up the final of the regular season DS9 episodes. Because bada bing, well, it's fun. Bada bing is a three out of five, and I think that they should have gone out a little bit stronger, and I think that they did here, so I'm appreciative of it. We're done with the regular season DS9 episodes, Clay. It's only the final arc from here on out. It's called the final chapter, which makes me just want to sing final countdown over it. Uh, I don't think I will. I'll try to avoid myself, but for here on out, we only have like nine episodes left, and then we're done. That's that's wild. So we're going to be done in like six weeks? Before Christmas. It's the Monday before Christmas we should finish. Wow. And after that, only 178 Voyager episodes. That's right. Oh, boy. (laughs) Don't worry. It'll feel like 350. I have to go. You guys start it. I have to go get a pack of cigarettes. Patrons, the only you know the way that you can punish Clay is to get us up to that uh, that magic number that makes us do all the Voyagers. I I demand. Do we have the magic number, actually? We, oh, I know what it is. We're we're a little ways away oh. from it. We need to make. We need to okay. get up to nine hundred. Yeah. I I demand that even if we do hit that, I I we need to do the the uh, Kelvin movies before we do Voyager. Yes, that's my my caveat. Yeah. Well, I think if we get to that amount, I'm just going to pull my Sloan character out mask out of there and just be like, "You naive morons!" Like, <laughs> <laughs> you need people I mean, like me gonna... to take your money so that you can't waste it on cigarettes and pornography. Yeah. It's going to sound great You'd through the solid... probably buy Voyager DVDs with us. <laughs> it's going to sound great through the solid gold microphones we'll have, though. <laughs> thank you very much, guys. We've run long, so I'm going to wrap it up here. Darren, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me, and enjoy the final run, guys. Do you want to... Uh, thank you very much. Do you want to plug anything that you've got, or just your, mention your Twitter oh, or anything? Lots and lots of plugging. When is this releasing? This comes out what, uh, Thursday, this Thursday. Oh, perfect. Okay. So, yes, in keeping with the leather theme of the episode, there will be lots of plugging happening. Um, on, uh, so basically this weekend, as you're listening to this, uh, my other podcast called The 250, uh, will be, uh, will be doing an episode with Nicolas Cage's Left Behind, uh, which is Ooh. quite a film, uh, and well worth a listen. He'll play Captain Rick Steele, which is by far the most exciting thing about the movie. Um, <laughs> and other than that, you can find me online. I'm, uh, I'm at the movie blog with a zero instead of an O, where I've reviewed almost every episode of Star Trek ever made. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at Darren underscore Mooney, uh, where and I rant it, about movies and crazy stuff. Is the 250, is it you're doing the, the IMDb 250? Is that what it is? Y- yes, the IMDb 250 and occasionally the bottom 100 as well, because it turns okay, out gonna- that one of the... One of the great ways to get people to talk about movies is to invite them to talk about terrible movies. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think that Left Behind movies, in the, although it's IMDb, I don't know. The Dark Knight <laughs> is like my the bluff, number one Clay. movie of all Call time. my bluff, yeah. <laughs> Clay, do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, no, I don't think so. We get a horror movie podcast starting probably early next year called The Rotten Horror Picture Show. Um, where we, we will similarly, similarly, be doing uh, the 
200 high, highest rated uh, horror movies on Rotten Tomatoes. Yep. It'll be me nice. and Amanda who joined us on the last Real Ripe and Real Rotten. That's right. And otherwise, Badass is on its hiatus, but the Q&A will be coming out mm-hmm. soon. Real Ripe and Real Rotten continues. We have Arnold Schwarzenegger coming up next. DS9 is going to wrap up before Christmas. And then we have Picard coming after that. So we'll do some Kelvin movies, and then we'll get to Picard. And we're all very excited for that, aren't we? So let's keep we'll keep ourselves optimistic here. Things are shining brightly on Star Trek. There's a billion things that you can watch, I suppose. And otherwise, thank you guys very much for listening. Thank you for supporting the show. And we'll see you later. <laughs>